0: Welcome to the Health Hub on Radio Maria Canada, exploring cutting-edge health and wellness information and therapies helping you to take your health to the next level. I am Kathy Biasa, your host, and I am an holistic nutritionist and a professional cancer coach. Covering the topic of friendship can seem to be a large bite, but when we can take a look at the topic from a scientific perspective the whole subject becomes a little bit more keyhold and that's what we're doing this week with our guest dr marissa g franco Um, She is an enlightening psychologist and a national speaker and is known for digesting and communicating science in ways that resonate deeply enough with people to change their lives. She works as a professor at the University of Maryland and authored Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make And keep friends. She writes about friendship for psychology today and has been a featured connection expert for major publications like the New York Times, the Telegraph, and Vice. She speaks on belonging at corporations, government agencies, nonprofits, and universities across the country. This has been a a great conversation. Uh, The the show has been recorded, so unfortunately, you can't call in and talk to Dr. Franco, but uh, a great speaker. And such an interesting topic, especially, you know, coming out uh, the back end of COVID where we were all so isolated for the most part. The topic of friendship, loneliness, company um, has really taken on a new spin and a new area of concentration. We talk about a lot of things in our show, uh, why it is important to have friends, you um, Another topic is are there different uh, different types of friendships and why it can be so hard to maintain and make or make and maintain Adult friendships, lots more too, um, that come out in this conversation. These are some main points. Uh, the book is awesome. Um, I really, I really hope that after you hear this conversation, you go out and buy it. It is, uh, it was released September the sixth, uh, and is a New York Times bestseller. So, everybody, please do stay tuned. We will be back to talk to Doctor Marissa G. Franco in just a few minutes. Mm-hmm. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back to the show, everybody. As mentioned, our show has been recorded, so no opportunity for calling in. Um, Please do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at The Health Hub RMC on all of those locations. Dr. Franco, thank you so much for joining us today. I know you've had a busy, busy day. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So I want to preface this whole interview um, by, actually, you tell us. The book was released September 6th, and what were you telling me just before the show? This is great news for you to share. It became a New York Times bestseller. Oh, how awesome. Everybody knows who follows this show how amazed I am with people who write books. I mean, it's just such an undertaking. It, you know, uh, we only know by by uh, our quick meetings here, but honestly, I, I you know, with hardly knowing it, I'm so proud of, <laughs> of what you've done. It's just an awesome, awesome thing. Congratulations. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. <laughs> so um, you obviously are a big friendship person. And that is a humongous topic. Um, and we're going to get into so much of this. Why did you choose to write a book about friendship at this point in time? Yeah, it's so funny because I,
1: you know, I decided to write the book in 2019, which was right before the pandemic, but then a uh, Everything changed. And, um, you know, I think my message coming in was like, we really undervalue friendship and (laughs) we need to focus on it more. And then I think in the pandemic, I heard more people saying the same thing. Uh, So the culture has changed a little bit. But I, I decided to write Platonic really because in my young 20s, I went through breakup and I started this wellness group with my friends where we met up and we cooked and we did yoga and we meditated and it felt so healing for me, not because of the wellness. I mean, the wellness was great, but just being in community with people I love that love me every week. And it made me reflect that, you know, I think I took these breakups so badly because I thought romantic love was the only form of love that made me worthy. And without it, I had no love at all. Right. But the, the, wellness group made me question that because I was like, this love is real and it's always been around me. And why have I pretended that it doesn't count? And so I felt like I was being caught up in a larger cultural problem about how we tend to devalue platonic relationships and friendships. And and I think um, part of the reason I wanted to write platonic is because I feel like we have this hierarchy on love with platonic love at the bottom. And I think it harms all of us.
0: Hmm. That's a very interesting concept, and I'll bet you, I'll bet most people don't look at it that way. But after you iterating it, people are like, huh, yes, maybe that is true. You know, you get into a relationship, friends fall by the wayside. You take on friendships of particular groups you may be in, like hockey team parents, and but are they cultivated friendships to last a lifetime? It's such an interesting topic. Did the did the pandemic? Change a part of the focus of your book, or did it just bring home everything you wanted to write about? It definitely made it more visceral. Like, I I talk about in
1: the book how, you know, we think of exercise and diet as really important for being healthy, but in fact, social connection affects how long we live more than our diet and exercise. You know, I talked about research finding that at a 106 factors that prevent against depression, having a confidant is the number one protector. And there was this other study that found that when we're around other people, they tend to amplify our emotions, both good and bad. Um, and so when we're alone or only around the same person, we experience a limited emotional range and can feel this sort of lack of vitality, almost like this this deadness. Um, and all of that was easy to I want to say ignore, just not necessarily acknowledge, right? Because when you're eating something, it's so physical and it's so tangible. And when you're working out and you feel the sweat on your body, it's like, oh, yeah, there's all this evidence that this is benefiting me, right? Mm-hmm. And when you're so isolated and then you go on a walk with friends and you notice, oh, my gosh, the difference in my mood, the difference in my center, it's so stark, right? We all of a sudden had this like real life experiment that really showed us what it means to live a more connected life and what we lose when we're isolated. So that was kind of my reflection on writing platonic. This was all intellectual for me in some ways until I lived it in the pandemic and
0: I noticed firsthand just how much we need connection. There are so many ways to go with the conversation on friendship. I'm not sure that we're going to get to all of them, but, you know, things that are popping into my mind. um, Are you a person that has, Easily made friends? Is that why you write the book? Because you can, you know, share your wisdom. You have the science that we're going to talk about to back you up, but can you also share the wisdom of having a number of friends? Or is friendship something that is a little bit more difficult for you to cultivate?
1: Kathy, I would say there's been a transformation. I don't think I was particularly bad at friendship or particularly good at it um, before I wrote Platonic. And since learning the science of connection and how to connect with people, I've become a lot better at it, which I think is a really hopeful message, right? That making friends, connecting with people, it's not anything that we're born with. It's really is the skill that we can cultivate. And there are certain things that we can do to get a lot better at connecting with other people. And I think I'm living proof of that because after I started applying these tips that I learned in platonic, it really did change the face of my friendships.
0: You know, many people, women included, well, no, I shouldn't say women included, women I, I speak to more because I am one, um, can find relationships a little bit risky to get involved with on the friendship basis, a little bit catty. Um, it can be difficult, almost to the point where people would rather not be in that uncomfortableness of cultivating a friendship and stay away from it which kind of makes it a little bit different from going and eating properly and exercise where it's kind of in your own space. Do you find that or is that just something that I've seen personally? Well, I I
1: will say that when it comes to connection, we have what's called the negativity bias, which means Mm -hmm. we remember a negative experience more than multiple positive experiences, right?
0: Absolutely, yes.
1: So that means if we've experienced one harmful friendship in our past, even if we've experienced many positive ones, we might go into new relationships with this assumption, right? That, hey, people might be catty or untrustworthy, or this feels like such a great risk. And the issue with that is that it's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy because if you think these relationships aren't going to be valuable, you're not going to invest in them. You're not going to try. You're not going to reach out, right? And inevitably, you're, yeah, you're not going to feel close to other people, right? And so uh, that's why I think something that's really important in how we approach friendships, because, you know, Kathy, you're not the only one who, who expresses some cynicism, right? I've heard other people say, you know, my close friend died, I don't know if I could make new friends, or everybody has their same groups, like it comes up in different forms, mm-hmm. right? But optimism is really, really key for making friends, you know, because of how, how we see the world tends to become self-fulfilling. So, Something else I talk about in Platonic is something called the acceptance prophecy, wherein when researchers told people, you're going to go into this group and be accepted based on your personality profile and our analyses, this was a lie. But when people were, were carrying this belief, they went into this social group. They were friendly, open, more warm, right? And it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Whereas when we think people are going to reject us or mistreat us, what happens is we tend to be more cold. We tend to be more withdrawn. We're actually coming off like we're rejecting them Mm -hmm. and then they reject us back. So I think it is really important to try to give give people a blank slate and assume that the best just might happen.
0: No, a blank slate can be hard for. There are some people, and I'm sure we know them, um, you know, walk into a room knowing nobody and walk out with five new friends. And then there are a lot of people who don't know how to socially make their way into a new group. Is that something that we can work on, or are just some people blessed with the art of conversation? You know, you look at some people and you think, I'd like to be friends with him or her.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So here's, you know, I think the secret of the super, um, this people that are super good at, at making friends, right. They understand the theory of inferred attraction, which is that people like people that they think like them. And, you know, I used to think that being good at making friends is about being funny, charismatic, insightful. Mm -hmm. But in fact, that's the last, the least important quality. The most important quality people desire in a friendship is someone who makes them feel like they matter, makes them feel like they are important. So these people, you know, some of us always at times, I think this is normal, who are so afraid of others and think that others are are rejecting them. They tend to come off as rejecting people the most. They're more closed off, right? More distrusting. They're not you know, showing people warmth—they're not smiling at other people, right? Whereas these people that are good at at um, making connections, they make that assumption that other people like them, and fundamentally, they're trying to belong through making other people feel like they belong. The more we make other people feel like they belong, the more we will belong because something called risk regulation theory, and one of the the pr- parts of this theory is that we decide how much to invest in a relationship based on our projection of how likely we are to get rejected. So if I'm closed and I'm quiet and I'm not engaging with you and I'm not smiling at you and I'm just sitting off in the corner, right? What I'm, implying to other people around me is that I might reject you. And so that's why people are not approaching me. Right. But if I'm engaged and I'm saying hello and I'm saying, you know, what, what brought you here? You know, it's really nice to see you. Uh, It's really nice to meet you. Right. I'm implying to other people. I will not reject you. You can invest in me. You could try to connect with me and I will be open to it. Right. Mm -hmm. And that is the secret behind these people that are, are really good at connecting with others.
0: Do we necessarily make a checklist of characteristics that we want in a friend as we approach a group or one or two people? Like, do we in our minds, I go, "Mm, I don't think they fit the bill or, you know, I could be friends with that person. Is that something that is built into us as well? Yeah, Kathy, it's called in the research disregard criteria,
1: which is these criteria we use to disregard people before we really know them. So it could be gender, it could be race, it could be age, right? And the unfortunate thing is that it's not necessarily true, right? Like I, you know, other research on like how to build, for example, interracial relationships finds that engaging in something called habitual open-mindedness really promotes interracial friendship. And that's the sense that I can look at you, but I don't know anything about you like i really just cuz you're old 20 years older than me doesn't mean i know anything about whether we'd be compatible as friends or not um but most of us sort of just rely on these disregard criteria and tend to try to pursue friendships with people that are pretty similar to
0: us it's very interesting now what what would classify a friend versus an acquaintance yeah So
1: I have many different definitions of this. I think an acquaintance is someone you know of and a friend is someone you know. Um, So there's that feeling that you have more information about them. Maybe you've spent a little bit more time with them. Of course, each of us might have a different subjective definition of this, which is important because other studies find that half of all the people we consider friends don't consider us friends. (laughs) So (laughs) yeah, yeah. That really gets at the messiness of the definition that all of us have a different definition. But I also wanted to share how I define a good friend, right? Because I think a lot of us have this misconception that good company means good friend. If I like you, I like spending time with you, I think that you're a good friend. But that is a very different phenomenon than being a good friend. To me, being a good friend, it's not just I like you. It's not just you like me. It's a mutual commitment and investment in one another. It's I'm trying to show up in your times of need. It's I'm trying to be reliable. It's, you know, I'm trying to, um, you know, I'm I'm vulnerable with you. It's, um, you know, I'm trying to make your life lighter. When you need me, I will be there, right? And that, I think, is a script that I think I want to encourage a lot of us to take on when it comes to friendship, because when our script is this flimsy, you know, good vibes only, it's going to be easy, it's going to happen organically, right? It's going to make us a lot very disappointed. And not only that, we're not going to show up for our friends because we don't see that as part of friendship, this investment, this commitment, this work. And also when we get into conflict, which is a necessary part of true intimacy, whether romantic or platonic, right? We're going to assume, oh, it's not just positive vibes only. So I need to cut out rather than let me address this so that we can reconcile and be close again.
0: Which calls to mind the question for me, um, there are people that seem to have, you know, 15, 20 close friends and then others that have maybe one or two. So by your definition, can you have a lot of friends or is friendship really defined as a smaller, more intimate group? You know, um,
1: that's how I define good friends. I think if you, you know, you can have these sort of looser ties where it is more casual and less invested, right? But there is a limit fundamentally on how many good friends we can have. Because if it's an investment, it requires resources mm-hmm. and it requires time, right? And it's not something that we can do necessarily with everybody, nor should we try to, right? Like we should be discerning about who we're going to show up for. And if we try to show up for everyone, it's just going to overwhelm us and also choose people that are similarly invested as us when it comes to friendship. So I think we are limited in our resources. And there is a study that finds that The more cell phone contacts you have, the less you tend to interact with each one of them, suggesting Mm -hmm. that when there is a sacrifice we make when we create a broader network where we tend to have less depth with people within that network. So it just requires us to be discerning and think about, is this big network suiting me? Would I prefer a couple of really close friends than how things are now so that I can be intentional about trying to invest in a few people rather than just,
0: I don't know, having a blanket investment for everybody. So this calls to mind, for me, um, the whole social media um, play on friendship. And can the fact that many people, uh, you know, feel that their social media contacts, their, you know, Instagram followers, can there be confusion between what a friend is and what we really need to know about what a friend is? And and can this lead in a very bad direction?
1: It can, because I think what I love about friendship and its biggest liability is its ambiguity, right? Its ambiguity makes it fluid. And I can have one friend that's very close and one friend that's, you know, a low-dose friend that I only like in low doses. And I can, I can you know, allow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like that. <laughs> Thank you. I can allow for all of that. It's a creative act. It's one where we can choose, like, how deep we want to go based on what our needs are which is beautiful but mm-hmm. the other the liability of that is that we don't necessarily have the same expectations i don't necessarily feel as close to you as you do to me right and you might think you see me on social media and you're a friend to me whereas i might not see it that way and what that could, what could happen because of that is that you're expecting things out of me that i'm not willing to give to you i didn't consent to give to you right so there can be this messiness particularly in friendship of miscalibrated expectations and people having different definitions of friends that we don't see as much, I think, when you choose a spouse, because there's a more calibrated expectations. You both kind of chose each other. So it can get messy and it can get complicated. And I think, you know, would I define people that are, you're following on social media, but don't really interact with as friends, you know, I think, no, um, mm-hmm. you know, you can interact with them on, on social media if you're like, you know, affirming them and sliding into their messages and doing all those things, that active engagement, then, yeah, you can potentially be friends. But if you're just, you know, following them and you never actually engage with each other, even on social media, I don't think that's a friend.
0: Um, Obviously, a friendship as you're defining it, we may get cut off here because uh, I think this is a bit of a question, Um. Friendship seems to be, with your your method of looking at it, an area where we may need to do some self-work before yep. we can be the friend that we need to be to have good friendships. If this is too long of an answer, we can wait till we get back, or do you want to tackle some of it now? Absolutely. Um, I'll just say something briefly. There's this theory
1: called self-verification theory, which says that we look to people that verify our sense of reality. And the implications of this is that when they ask people in one study with low self-esteem to choose to interact with people that valued them or that didn't value them, They chose to interact with someone who didn't value them. Why? It's not that they didn't want to be loved and affirmed. It's that the person that valued them, they didn't trust and they didn't believe because it didn't match their sense of themselves, right? It almost felt like manipulative or it triggered a sort of identity crisis where this person is seeing me differently than I fundamentally see myself. And so that is the self work required, right? If we're not valuing ourselves, we are going to invite into our life relationships with people that devalue us too and that are fundamentally not healthy.
0: So if we value ourselves, then some of the disappointments that we bump into in friendships won't last as long. And then that whole sort of negative speak can kind of, we can kind of let that go a bit.
1: Yeah. If we value ourselves, we are only going to allow ourselves to engage in friendships with people that treat us well. If we don't value ourselves, we are we might actually prefer relationships with people that treat us badly because it's coherent with our sense of ourselves and it's coherent with our sense of reality and what is familiar, even if it's bad,
0: it still feels good because it's familiar. Interesting. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here, everybody. We will be back in just a few minutes. You are listening to The Health Hub here on Radio Maria Canada. A Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, email thh at radiomaria.ca. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We are talking with Dr. Marissa G. Franco. She has a wonderful best-selling New York Times book called Platonic. Uh, I love the conversation we're having. It's, you know, a lot of things you say kind of hit home. Um, it, working on you. sometimes maybe this is why people hide away from friendships and don't really want to make the effort because it starts with ourselves. And, and you know, following up on what you just said, do you offer ways that we can work on our own self-speak, our self-feeling to help us cultivate Better friendships?
1: Yeah. So here's the complicated thing about the self, right? It's very much affected by how other people see us. And so there are ways that you can work on yourself without other people, but a lot of the ways we heal our sense of self are in relationship with other people, where other people love us and are caring towards us. And we internalize that. And I've kind of talked about the importance of assuming people like you because it's a self fulfilling prophecy. But I also think it's really important to assume people like you because of something called the sociometric theory of self-esteem, which is basically this theory that self-esteem isn't as much how we feel about ourselves as much as it is a gauge of how we think other people feel about us. So one surprising way to build confidence and to feel better about yourself is to assume other people like you, right? Because Mm -hmm. then that, How we think other people see us fundamentally, inevitably um, infiltrates how we begin to see ourselves. So I like that tip both for us connecting better with other people, but also us connecting more with ourselves and feeling more comfortable with ourselves.
0: The past experience, as you mentioned, can be a big player in this. And you know, I I I just envision some people saying it's not worth it. (laughs) It's not worth really trying to unravel some of the negative stuff. And is there? can we leave space for other people doing that for us? Or do you really think it starts with us? Like if you bump into someone who's just lovely, mm-hmm. can they help with some of that negative speak? Absolutely. So here, here's what happens.
1: If we've had a healthy relationships in the past, we develop this sort of unconscious template for how people will treat us in the future. And it tends to become, like I said before, the theme of today, a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If we think other people are untrustworthy, We only notice the instances of people being untrustworthy. We don't register the cues of people being trustworthy. And we continue on with this unconscious template, right? And we even are going to enter relationships with people that are less trustworthy, right? Because if we're so closed off, the only people that are going to try to you know, push through our walls or the people that don't necessarily respect boundaries or consent, for example, right? So there's this way that, you know, whatever we think the, happens in the world affects our behaviors in ways that makes us manifest the, the things that we, we truly fear. Um, and so what happens is if we find this really loving relationship, it in a way can resculpt our template, right? We have this template that other people are in trust where the other people are going to reject us. We find this loving person. They're so counter to our template They make us begin to rethink some of these assumptions. They make us start to think, okay, good people do exist, right? But the liability there, Kathy, is that if we have this template, sometimes even when they're loving us, we won't actually receive it, right? Like for example, people who are avoidantly attached, who have had a history of of emotional neglect, when someone's loving towards them, they think that that person has an ulterior motive. So they don't actually receive it as love. They receive it, again, as manipulation. So part of doing your self-work is being able to receive other people's love, not not just other people expressing love towards you. But can you actually take a moment to take that in instead of refuting it? And it, can you notice when you're like, they're doing this because of X, Y, Z, and instead tell yourself, they're doing this because they love me and they're trying to express it, unless you have a reason not to assume that, making that your starting assumption is going to really help change some of that baggage, which bleeds into what you assume about
0: friendship now. So I'm going to assume that this is the very reason why it can be so much more difficult for adults to make friends than for younger people.
1: Yeah. I mean, that is a real reason. We do have a lot more baggage. We are in self-protection mode, which is inevitably anti-relationship mode. A lot of the things we do to protect ourselves harm our relationships, right? Like I'm not Mm -hmm. reaching out. I'm not being vulnerable. I'm not going to show affection. But the other reason is because, Kathy, we are in a fundamentally different environment as kids. We are in school. And school, according to sociologist Rebecca Adams, provides us with ingredients that allow for friendship to happen organically, including repeated, unplanned interaction and shared vulnerability, right? We have lunch, we have recess, we have gym. Friendship happens more organically. As adults, I see people every day at work, but often people are not vulnerable at work. They have fears. So what that means is that you're inhabiting a different environment. You can't rely on the same set of assumptions And if you do, you're going to end up being lonely. So I like to tell people, no, friendship in adulthood does not happen organically. It's going to happen if you try and if you put in the effort. And this is based off of a study that found that when people assumed friendship happened organically, they were actually lonelier five years later, whereas if they saw it as taking effort, they were less lonely because they showed up at the place of worship or they showed up at that volunteering event and they actually made the effort.
0: So are there ways for people, uh, you mentioned volunteering, you a place of worship. If you were going to tell somebody, um, I think it's important for you to go out and make friends. What are one, two, and three of those first steps in order to do that? Where do we find places of vulnerability, places where we can cultivate new adult friendships?
1: Yeah, so I say pursue a hobby in community with others, right? Because a lot of the times people that are also doing that, they want to meet people too. That's why they're not doing their hobby alone. So whatever you like, walking, exercise, you know, eating, you could find a separate club. You're gonna have to do a little bit of research to find a community in your area where you can do that in community. I say commit to doing it for for like two to three months before you quit, if it's a group that you think you like, right? Because that We basically like people more the more that we see them. It's called the mere exposure effect. When researchers planted women in a psychology lecture, at the end of the semester, nobody remembered the woman, but they reported the woman who showed up for the most classes 20% more than the woman that didn't show up for any. So what that tells us is that when you first meet people, it's awkward. You're going to be weary. Mm -hmm. You might not trust them. Mere exposure effect has not set in but that's not a sign that I need to jump ship and this isn't working. It's a sign that you are at one place in the larger trajectory of how friendship happens. And probably two to three months from now, you are going to like them more and they're going to like you more, and it's going to feel a lot more comfortable for you. But the other tip that I have, when you engage in that group, you have overcome something called overt avoidance, which is our tendency to avoid things because they make us... We're scared. We feel uncomfortable, right? Mm -hmm. But you also have to overcome something called covert avoidance, which is our tendency to show up physically, but check out mentally. Mm -hmm. I showed up to that hiking group. I was on my phone the whole time, right? I didn't actually engage with anyone. I talked to the one person that I I had already knew, right? I walked off alone, right? So you have to not just overcome showing up, but you have to do something when you get there. You have to say, you know, Hey, I'm Kathy. How long have you been a part of this group? Where are some other hikes that you've done? Right. You have to overcome that covert avoidance, introduce yourself with people, engage with people, because remember people like people that they think like them. And so you're showing interest in people. You're showing them that you like
0: them. I think the icebreaking part of it all, I think is one of the most scary parts about going into a new group. Um, And do you recommend doing this on your own or go with a friend or does that defeat the whole purpose?
1: No, I think you can go with a friend as long as you are intentional about not just using that friend as uh, uh, an excuse for covert avoidance. Yeah. But the other thing that I'll say, if this sounds like too much for you, I think a lower hanging fruit that you can do is reach out to reconnect with someone from the Mm -hmm. past who you wish you didn't fall out of touch with. The reason being that most of the time when our friendships end, it's not because there was any major conflict, it's because things just fizzled. And the research finding that when you text a friend to reconnect with them, they actually appreciate it more than you assume. So you may think they don't want to hear from me. But according to the research, they're actually probably appreciate hearing
0: from you. Um, and so yeah, there's that awkward time, right? Like, uh, okay, I, I know she told me her name. I don't remember it. I'm not asking. We haven't texted in a long time. I'm not going to do it. She's going to think I'm awful. Yeah. Um, and again, that negative speak. Um, is there a difference between um, same-sex friendships and opposite-sex friendships? Or are, is it the same sort of overriding understanding of what a basic friendship is?
1: Well, we do see that men who are friends with men tend to experience less vulnerability, less intimacy. They experience less affection in their friendships than women who are friends with women. So there's the big gender divide. What we find is that when men are friends with women, they tend to experience more intimacy in their friendships versus when they're friends with just men um, and more of that emotional support. Um, And so that becomes part of their friendships with women and it's less likely to happen in their friendships with men. So in other words, the friend zone is a great place to be.
0: Sorry, the friend zone is a great place to be all in all. Yes, it is
1: a great (laughs) place to be for your if you're a man, you know, who's become friends with women. You know, you're probably receiving something from that friendship that would be harder to receive in your friendships with other men.
0: And friendship does take work. I mean, you just can't. It's just not an organic thing that you don't need to uh, that you don't need to work on. And that that's becoming more apparent with the more you're you're talking about things. Um, you've done a lot of research for the book. It's coming out in your conversation, and it's it's very well documented in your book. Were there f- certain studies or f- certain points that you came across that really kind of surprised you? Hmm. Yeah,
1: I mean I guess like one of the uh one of the the findings that in the in the book that was interesting is when I had this chapter on generosity and how important it is for friendship and I was dealing with this tension between we have a spe- specifically women have experienced all this pressure to be generous and almost be a martyr and not have any boundaries for yourself. And then on the opposite end, I think there's the movement now to ha- be hyper-boundary, right? And someone reaches out to you, and you're like, "I'm not available. I'm at capacity," right? Which is antithetical to an assumption we have towards our friends, which is you're going to support me in our times of need. So, I was thinking about how do I balance these things, and I actually found in the research that people that are unmitigated givers who give and give and give, they actually experience worse mental health and worse relationships that when someone gives to another person reluctantly and out of obligation, the person that receives it actually enjoys the experience less and they enjoy it less than they would if that person didn't give anything at all. And so Mm -hmm. there is this way that we need to be discerning and we need to be aware of our needs and drives and try to be generous, but also welcome ourselves to have boundaries as needed um, so that we can, again, it's it's a way to refuel so that you can be more generous in the long run instead of being burnt out.
0: Is it fair to say that the more you practice this, the better friend you can be, or the more friends you can cultivate, or is each and every experience unique?
1: Um, Kathy, I think there is a way that the more we practice, the better we get. Just like a uh, the less we practiced, the worse we got, which I think we experienced over the pandemic. Like
0: mm-hmm.
1: we didn't interact and then we all feel socially anxious and very exhausted by social interaction. And we're just like blathering on and it's harder to read the cues, right? Like there was just uh, people on my Instagram, um, at least reported so much awkwardness that they experienced after the pandemic. And, and that's, you know, social interaction is the muscle just like any other one. And the more you practice – the easier it gets.
0: Do you find going back to the pandemic and the two years that we were so out of touch in your in your practice and what in what you're doing and writing about? Is this one of the main hits of COVID? Is this not out of sync with friendship? Do you find that that is a mental piece that we really do need to take and pay attention to?
1: I do, I do, and I think. That, you know, overall the meta analyses have found that loneliness did increase at least slightly during the pandemic. But I will say that I feel like I also, you know, am hopeful because I feel like since the pandemic, there's just a lot more conversation about friendship and people have realized in this more visceral way, like I spoke about just how important it is. And so my hope that is that one of the lessons of the pandemic, even if it did make us a little bit more isolated is that it made us realize that this is a priority that we need Mm -hmm. to invest in. And it's not something that we can be passive about and let fall to the wayside because it's literally one of the most important things of our life.
0: Yeah, I, th- I was actually really impressed with, uh, you know, living in my own house with my own kids and the way they um, schedule time for their friends, house party, you know, um, Zoom meetings. I-, I-, I thought that people really, you know, when they stepped back for the first six weeks, they really saw the hurt of not seeing people. So I agree with you. Now, if there was just one or two key elements of platonic that you would like your readers to take away. What would they be?
1: I think generally that people are receiving you a lot more positively than we think. Um, I shared that, you know, the research on the liking gap that, uh, well, when strangers interact and they predict how like they are by the other person, they underestimate how liked they are. There's research on affection that when we share affection, we think it comes off as more awkward than it does and people actually value it more than we do. And so, you know, when I I do speaking engagements on connection and belonging and I, I ask people an and affection they'd like to share with their friends and they say beautiful things like I hear your voice through the phone and it makes me smile every time I listen to you or you made me who I am, you know, but they don't actually express these things. And so I think correcting some of those misconceptions is really helpful for us because it gives us the liberty to take risks and engage in behaviors that really create intimacy. But the other thing that I would say, just to sum everything up, my niece, Angelica, she read my book and her, her summary of it was that for friendship to happen, someone has to be brave. So be mm. brave. That's very good. Very, very good. Where can we find your book? Yeah. So my book is called Platonic How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends, available wherever books are sold. Um, if you want to learn more on the science of friendship, you can reach out to me, uh, follow me on Instagram at Dr. Marissa G. Franco, D R M A R I S A G F R A N C O. Also on my website, drmarissagfranco.com, you can take a survey that assesses your strengths and weaknesses as a friend and gives you mm. recommendations or reach out to me for any um, speaking engagements related to connection, belonging, friendship. Do you have a practice, a private practice? I had to close it
0: down because I have a lot of book marketing to do mm. these days. Mm-hmm. And another book in the works. I know you're just just launching this one, but I've often been told that after the first book, the rest just flow. You know, yeah, I'm definitely gonna write another one. Uh, Still figuring out what direction I want to head. Amazing, amazing. Well, it's just really been such a pleasure having you on the show. I really do appreciate you taking the time from your book tour to share this great topic with us. Thank you so much for having me. It was a delight. Thank you. And everybody, we will talk to you next week on The Health Hub.